This paper is, uh, for those of you who might have seen it, uh, the paper's still very rough and it's, it's in its early stages, so it's a real privilege for me to be presenting it sort of in this venue at this stage. Um, and it's part, I just thought I'd add, that's part of what I hope uh, might become kind of a larger project on the treatment of criminality in the immigration context, in the context of immigration law sort of trying to put together criminal law theory with a lot of the work that's been done in philosophy, political philosophy and immigration. Um, uh, and that project too, that larger project, is really just something I'm beginning to contemplate. So what I thought I'd do is I'm going to start by just setting out the problem. Uh, the problem being, is there a coherent rationale for a practice of excluding uh, people with criminal past from refugee protection? Uh, and my proposed answer to the extent that I've worked it out so far, which is that exclusion, the exclusion of people with criminal past, uh, expresses a non-punitive form of blame. Okay. So, and I just thought I'd say at the outset that what I'm proposing here is sort of an explanation or a coherent account of the practice. Uh, I'm not committed to sort of normatively defend this coherent rationale. Uh, I think, I happen to think that Kant had some pretty funny ideas about the criminal law, and I'm not sure I'm on board with all of them. So, so anyways, so let me begin by setting out the problem. So the problem is to understand uh, exclusion. Uh, and exclusion in refugee law is provided for under Article 1F of the Convention Relating to the Status of Refugees, uh, and it's reproduced. Uh, so Article 1F is reproduced in most national and regional instruments with respect to refugee protection. Um, there are also non-criminal grounds for exclusion, but my focus is 1F. Um, and under 1F, people who face a well-founded fear of persecution, which is normally the form of triggering harm that entitles you to refugee protection. So people who may face such a fear of persecution are nonetheless disentitled to refugee protection uh, because they've committed in the past certain crimes or guilty acts. Um, and the guilty acts in specific, specifically found in Article 1F are um, international crimes, so war crimes, crimes against humanity, crimes against peace, uh, sort of serious domestic crimes, um, and uh, a mysterious category of guilty acts that are contrary to the principles and purposes of the United Nations. So one of the, one of the challenges in proposing an account of exclusion, sort of an account of the rationale for exclusion, is this range of crimes and acts covered in Article 1F. Um, and so studies show, so why is this important? Studies show, there aren't a lot of studies, and I had no luck sort of at the last minute finding statistics on exclusion before I came here today. But the last paper that I know of that talked about statistics on exclusion showed that it's a growing phenomenon. Uh, so in Canada, this is a paper by Asha Kashal and Catherine Duverne that was published, I forget when, but sometime in the last several years. Uh, and according to that paper, there were only two people excluded under Article 1F in 1998 um, out of probably approximately, um, and I'm guessing here, 20,000, 30,000 claims decided that year. Uh, whereas in 2008, there were 79 people that were excluded. Um, so exclusion is one, a sort of very, accounts for a very small number of decisions, uh, refugee claim decisions, but it is a growing phenomenon. And I have to say that in my experience, I used to be a legal advisor at the IRB. I probably gave advice on exclusion cases once every 
two or three weeks. So it was a semi-regular occurrence. Um, and in Canada, uh, taking as an example Article 1FB, which is the part of 1F that covers serious domestic crimes, um, in Canada, you see under people excluded under 1FB for things that I think everyone would agree are serious. Uh, crimes like assault, murder, drug-related offenses, you can find all those if you do a search of the case law. But uh, you can also find people who've been excluded for things like drunk driving, credit card fraud, um, possession with intent to distribute marijuana, uh, use of false documents. And in one particularly sort of egregious case, there's a family of Polish Roma who were excluded because they were habitual shoplifters. Um, that case was actually overturned by the federal court. But the reason I'm pointing out all these cases is that uh, it really does seem to me that, you know, while I'm about to sort of take you on this sort of meandering uh, discussion of Kant, uh, there's a real practical motivation here, and that is to provide the kinds of signposts that, uh, that sort of giving an account of the rationale for exclusion might provide. Um, so the, the issue in providing that kind of account is not so much whether such crimes are serious or not, because we could have disagreements about the seriousness of, say, credit card fraud. Um, but it's whether or not uh, those crimes, and which crimes, if any, justify withholding the protection that we give to refugees normally, right? So uh, in most, in the dominant legal and philosophical understandings of who is a refugee, um, it's generally held to be the case that a refugee is someone who faces um, a threat to not only their human rights, but to their basic human rights. And so the question really in looking for this rationale for exclusion is what could possibly justify disentitling people with a criminal past from the protection of their basic human rights? Or to give a sharper edge to it, um, if you look at um, UNHCR's proposed rationale for exclusion, what UNHCR says is that people who are covered by 1F are undeserving of refugee protection. So another, again, the question becomes, what could possibly render you undeserving of having your basic human rights protected? Uh, does sort of desert-based thinking even properly have any sort of role here? Um, so, so that's the challenge as I see it for providing this rationale. And I think uh, if you look at the institution of sort of the refugee convention, uh, I think the challenge of providing the rationale is made uh, even sharper or even harder by certain features of the refugee, um, international refugee protection regime. Uh, the first of these, and this is something I can only just assert, um, is that I think, I, in my view, that there's sort of a deep ambiguity in the refugee protection regime, in discussions of it in the case law, between whether or not sort of the protection of refugees, morally speaking, is a matter of justice or beneficence. And I also, and I think that that translates into a further ambiguity in some of the vocabulary that's used in what, uh, with respect to whether or not refugee protection is a matter of human rights protection or whether or not it's a matter of human humanitarianism. Okay? So that's one difficulty. Uh, I think that any sort of coherent rationale or attempt to provide a rationale for exclusion has to address that ambiguity. Uh, Another difficulty is that I think that any coherent rationale has to avoid construing exclusion as punishment. So 
there are institute, and I take this to be a premise, right? Uh, it's a premise that I think can be defended um, on institutional grounds. So the uh, standard of proof for excluding someone from refugee protection is far below proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It's just whether or not there are serious reasons for considering that the person has committed a crime in the past. And the evidentiary and procedural protections that we associate with criminal law are for the most part uh, absent in refugee hearings. So, and finally, uh, what I would add is that I think that there's sort of a conceptual problem. There would be a conceptual problem in construing exclusion as a form of punishment because uh, it seems to me that whatever persecution is, it can't be punishment. You know, persecution is sort of a private, private targeting of someone's human rights, human, human rights. And that seems to be the opposite of what punishment is intended to be, a sort of public targeting of someone's rights. So, so the problem, in a nutshell, is how can the practice of exclusion be justified if exclusion is not punishment, is not punishment uh, and how to provide that, punish, that justification in such a way that it addresses this ambiguity that I at least think exists uh, between beneficence and justice in uh, the sort of moral case for refugee protection. Okay, and what I try to do in the paper uh, is to develop what I call a blame account of exclusion. And under this account, uh, oh, and I turn to blame, I should say, because it seems to me that blame is a useful idea in, in insofar as it's flexible. Blame is our blaming, our practices of blaming are something that come into play obviously in our criminal justice system. But we also blame people uh, outside of the criminal justice system. So if we want to look for a sort of a candidate idea to explain um, a form of treatment that we subject uh, people with a criminal past to, but which is not punishment, blame seems like at least a promising point of departure. Okay? So where do I turn to to develop this account? Uh, my two ba ba basic uh, theoretical building blocks are uh, T.M. Scanlon and his account of blame, and Kant's account of cosmopolitan right, and Kant's also sort of theories of punishment. Um, so let me start with Scanlon and blame. So Scanlon proposes that blame is just a response to the impairment of a relationship. Okay? So uh, the specific quote, and I'll read, is that, to, uh, quoting Scanlon, to blame a person for an action is to take that action to indicate something about the person that impairs one's relationship to him or her, and to understand that relationship in a way that reflects the impairment. Okay? So practices of blaming involve, uh, require a relationship, uh, and blame responds to the impairment of that relationship by the person that you're blaming. Okay? Uh, and so if we're going to use this account of blame to build, to try to explain what's going on when we exclude refugees, what we need to do is identify uh, four things, at least. Like the first thing we need to do is identify, OK, what is the relationship that's in play here? right? Uh, and the next thing, uh, next thing we need to do is we need to say, how is that relationship being impaired by the criminal acts that are covered by 1F? Um, third, we need to say, how does exclusion express blame sort of in response to this impairment? 
And the fourth thing we need to say is how is exclusion a fitting expression of blame in response to this impairment? So what's the relationship? What's the impairment? How does exclusion express blame? And why is it fitting? Um, you also need to do something which I'm not going to do today. You need to explain uh, why alternative accounts can't uh, also explain exclusion. Right? You need to say a little bit more than I've said today about why exclusion can't be construed as punishment. And another alternative account, uh, which I have not really worked out uh, and which I'm not going to get into today, uh, but it seems to me the, the sort of number one alternative candidate to the blame account is the idea that people who've committed these past criminal acts have somehow forfeited their human rights. Right. So that, um, so there's criminal forfeiture is a whole sort of theory uh, that may justify justify the punishment of criminals. Um, forfeiture of human rights may also justify this non-punitive practice that is exclusion. Um, I don't like the forfeiture explanation, which is why I suppose I'm attracted to the blame explanation. Okay. So one criticism of Kant, of Scanlon's account of blame that's relevant to this attempt to take it and to try to use it to explain exclusion is the fact that because Scanlon's account of blame requires the impairment of a relationship, uh, it may be the case that Scanlon can't explain blame between strangers, right? You know, if one of you got up and left because I don't know you, I may not be able to blame you for doing that on Scanlon's account. Scanlon tries to get out of that by saying that, oh yeah, it's a relational account of blame, but we all exist nonetheless in sort of a universal moral relationship. And the universal moral relationship is what can be um, turned to to justify our practices of blaming towards strangers. And he accepts that sort of blaming of sort of really remote individuals takes on a very sort of third personal quality. Uh, but nonetheless, he does. He thinks that it is a, ultimately a relational, uh, that blame is an interpersonal relational uh, practice. Um, I, so that's how Scanlon tries to get around this uh, criticism. The way I think you can get around this criticism for my purposes is to say that the relationship in question is a Kantian cosmopolitan relationship. And so that's where I turn from Scanlon to Kant. Okay. So, as I've signaled uh, sort of already, I think that we can fill in all the sort of one through four elements of the argument by turning to Kant and Kant's political and legal philosophy and his account of uh, cosmopolitan right. So for those who know Kant, excuse me right now for going into probably a bit more detail than you might like. Uh, actually, excuse me if you don't know Kant and you don't want to know the detail, I'm still going to go into it. Because uh, it sets up kind of a key theoretical claim that I make along the way. Um, so Kant's doctrine of right um, can be interpreted as centrally concerned with a problem of authority, right? So it, it, you can read Kant as saying, like, the main question that any doctrine of right has to answer is how can we authoritatively settle disagreements about our rights, um, disagreements about one another's rights, sort of the reciprocal limits of one another's rights. 
So Kant holds that all persons who are sufficiently proximate to one another, uh, to, to one another, that they threaten one another's rights. So Kant holds that everyone who's kind of within firing range of each other um, uh, are under a duty to exit uh, the state of nature and to enter what he variously calls a civil, a juridical, a rightful condition. Uh, that is a condition in which disagreements about right between private parties can be authoritatively settled by some sort of public authority, right? And this duty, uh, he articulates, is the postulate of public right. Uh, it's the duty to enter a rightful condition with proximate others, okay? And this postulate for Kant flows from the fact that in the state of nature, no one's obliged to submit to another person's judgment. And in fact, um, Sorry, so no one's obliged to submit to another person's judgment with regard to their rights. And in fact, uh, within the limits of what Kant calls the duty of rightful honor, you're obliged not to submit to another person's judgments about the limits of your rights, right? Because to do so may be to make yourself that person's means. It may be to subordinate yourself to that person's will, okay? Uh, and as a result, there's this potential for disagreement about our rights, this constant potential for disagreement about our rights in the state of nature leads to a situation of latent and pervasive violence. And so the postulate of public right is the obligation that everyone owes to everyone else to whom they're close, that they're close enough to injure to exit the situation of pervasive and latent violence. Okay? So that is my attempt to summarize Kant's entire legal and political philosophy <laughs> in a couple of paragraphs. Um, and so, so the problem is to find sort of how you can authoritatively settle rights out of the state of nature. And Kant proposes that sort of, Kant discusses three different kinds of juridical and civil conditions that correspond to three different kinds of states of nature. Right? There's a state of nature between private persons that leads to the obligation to create states. So the civil condition that is each state. Uh, and Kant specifically has in mind Republican states with legislatures, uh, judiciaries, and executives. Right? Uh, another, there's another state of nature that is between these states that we create. Uh, and so Kant says the postulate of public right there leads to an obligation to enter into a condition of international right. And a third state of nature, which is, and the one that concerns me in trying to think about refugee protection and the justification of exclusion, is a state of nature that would be created every time sort of a person that belongs to one state encounters another state. Right? Every time a foreigner or a migrant or a colonizer comes and encounters a state to which they do not belong. Right? And so in that case, um, there's a state of nature because the foreigner and the state may have different ideas about the foreigner's right to enter and to settle in the state that they've come to. Uh, and the solution to that particular state of nature, according to Kant, is cosmopolitan right. Okay. Um, so to settle these questions about rights of entry and the right, right of settlement, uh, you have to have resort to the juridical condition of cosmopolitan right. Um, so combined, Kant's three juridical conditions, states, international right, and cosmopolitan right, are supposed to lead us eventually uh, to a condition of peaceful and global constitutionalism. Uh, so there is a double teleology, teleology at work 
uh, towards peace and global constitutionalism in Kant's philosophy, uh, which I call in the paper the Cosmopolitan Project. Uh, and I think that this might be seen as the animating idea behind the United Nations Project of which the international refugee protection regime uh, is a part. Okay. So that's Kant in a nutshell again. Um, but a crucial question uh, I want to insist, and which sort of plays a big part in my argument, is that even though Kant says that cosmopolitan right is a response to the state of nature that exists between the foreigner and the state, it's actually not clear how authority is constituted under cosmopolitan right. So at the core of cosmopolitan right is what Kant calls the right of hospitality. There's some ambiguity right there between uh, the role of justice and beneficence. Um, and the right of hospitality for Kant is a right to visit, um, to present oneself for society, quoting Kant in Perpetual Peace, or to offer to engage in commerce, quoting Kant from Metaphysics of Morals, without encountering hostility or without being treated as an enemy. Uh, this right to hospitality is limited. Um, uh, you, can be, you can be expelled. Expulsion is permissible if that can be done without destroying you. Right? And the examples that Kant gives of destruction in his lectures on ethics are sort of turning away sailors who are shipwrecked. Um, that's the only example I can think of right now. He gives two examples. I can only think of one. Sorry. Uh, and it's so you can be turned away if that can be done without destroying you. And it's only by entering into what Kant calls a special beneficent pact that the outsider receives a right to inhabit the state on a longer term basis. So uh, now I think that it's important to see that with these parameters, Kant, all Kant has done is really deferred what is the <coughs> fundamental problem of his legal and political philosophy, right? This question of authority. Uh, he set out certain parameters of right which apply to both receiving state and the foreigner. But one question you could ask is why either party, either the state or the foreigner, should accept Kant's parameters of cosmopolitan right. Where do they get authority? And then there's a further question, which is why should either party accept the other's determinations about the interpretation and application of each of these parameters, about sort of what counts as a permissible means of presenting yourself to, for society, uh, what counts as treating someone as an enemy, or sort of to go back to permissible means of treating, of uh, offering to enter into society, uh, and to try to bring Kant forward a few hundred years. So, is it permissible, or would the permissible means of presenting yourself to society include um, applying for a visa only? Or would it include illegal entry into a state? Or would it, in, would it include colonization? Like these are sort of open questions in Kant. Uh, we, there are other open questions about what, uh, as I said before, uh, what counts to what it, what it means to treat someone as an enemy or with hostility, uh, what it means to destroy to send someone back to be destroyed. Right? Does uh, can we make an automatic equation between this? Uh, in uh, this, um, uh, between Kant saying that you can't destroy someone and the bar of uh, on uh, sending someone back to be persecuted under today's international refugee protection regime. Um, 
So there are all these questions, and they need to be settled. And the question is, how can we authoritatively settle these questions in the application of Kant's cosmopolitan right? Uh, and it's important to see also that the shared institutions, the legislature, the judiciary, the executive, that establish authority within the state are, by definition, absent in the case of the cosmopolitan encounter. Right? The, in Kant's way of thinking, the foreigner just is someone whose will is not subsumed under those institutions. So it's unclear how you can settle these questions authoritatively. Um, and because I take it that we all should be concerned with whether or not immigration or colonialism, uh, which was Kant's concern, can be governed rightfully, uh, uh, I think that this question of the authoritative settlement of decisions about immigration is something that should concern us all, and specifically in the context of refugee, refugee law. Um, so my proposal is to take seriously Kant's reference uh, in Perpetual Peace to the idea that you can only settle by, me by resort to a special beneficent pact. Okay? And so even absent a shared legislature, executive, judiciary, either party, either the foreigner or the receiving state, may accept determinations of right by the other party if those determinations are made um, beneficently. So if the determinations are made beneficently, um, you would not be subordinating yourself to the other party. You would not be making yourself a means uh, by acceding to or accepting their determinations. So to explain a bit more what I mean, Kant says that beneficence, and I'm reading here, is the maxim of making the other person's happiness one's end. And beneficence is a duty, uh, because we ha all have a reason to accept this maxim of making others' happiness our end, a universal law. So beneficence is a duty of virtue, as opposed to a duty of right. Uh, it has the same moral force, according to Kant, as any duty of right. So it would be wrong for a state uh, not to make decisions with respect to right uh, by uh, beneficently. Um, uh, however, you can't enforce duties of beneficence, right? So that's the problem. Uh, you can't enforce them, and they also give the duty bearer a certain latitude in acting on them. So what my proposal is, both to explain Kant's sort of account of cosmopolitan right and to explain the question of authority of cosmopolitan right and the refugee protection regime is that when the party with jurisdiction, and I just sort of parenthetically note that this question of who has jurisdiction to make these decisions is an open and difficult one, but I'm just going to assume right now that it belongs to the state. Um, when the party with jurisdiction to make these determinations uh, makes them in such a way that it's clear that they're deciding questions of right by making the other person's happiness their end, the other, per the other party has reasons to accept that determination, that decision, right? You uh, so if those determinations with regard to right are made with goodwill, uh, aiming at the other's happiness, the other party has a reason to accept them in the same spirit, sort of with reciprocal goodwill. Uh, and so what happens is a kind of beneficent negotiation of what right requires. And through this uh, negotiation of the requirements of right, the negotiations of the terms of a special beneficent pact, uh, a form of authority is constituted. 
and I will add also parenthetically that this is actually how I think the natural duty of justice in Rawls's late theory uh, has to constitute authority under conditions of deep pluralism. So I think that there is a connection here between sort of one reading of Rawls and this particular reading of Kant. Um, so in a nutshell, but sort of, yeah, close parenthesis, uh, what I'm proposing that is that authority under cosmopolitan right comes from the combination of right and beneficence, and that the receiving state must make decisions regarding admission or exclusion beneficently if it wants those decisions to have authority over the refugee protection claimant. Um, I, I find this view of authority uh, compelling and appealing. Uh, I also happen to think, uh, although clearly this is something that can be contested, that it may be the only way to give an account of the authority of immigration law. Um, and finally, I happen to think it explains this ambivalence that we see in the international refugee protection regime. Okay, okay so how does all this get us back to blame and exclusion, right? So first, uh, the first thing we had to do is identify the relationship. And so what I want to say is that the relationship at issue is this potential juridical relationship of cosmopolitanism. So the relationship is the cosmopolitan relationship. The second thing we want to do is identify what's the impairment at issue. And what I want to say is that the impairment is this impairment of the cosmopolitan project. So through criminality, uh, the act, criminal acts or the guilty acts that are covered by Article 1F, what you would have to say is that people who face exclusion somehow impaired the cosmopolitan <coughs> project of progressing towards global constitutionalism and peace. So you'd have to somehow say, sorry, that international crimes, serious domestic crimes, and guilty acts that are contrary to the principles and purposes of the United Nations somehow impair this cosmopolitan project. Um, and so that's the relationship and that's the impairment. So why does exclusion express blame and why can we construe it as a fitting response to blame? Um, in my view, what you'd have to say is that the fitting response is not the denial of the right. The, not the denial of the right not to be treated like an enemy, not the denial of the right not to be destroyed. Uh, it's rather the withholding of benef beneficence or of goodwill towards uh, the foreigner, right? Or the refugee protection claimant. And this is in line with an example that Scanlon gives in explaining his view of blame. So Scanlon gives the example of a person in your neighborhood uh, who is abused, who is acted abusively towards his spouse. And you know that the person is acted abusively towards his spouse. And Scanlon says that it would be a fitting expression of blame to withhold goodwill from this person and thereby refrain from entering into special, a special relationship of friendship with them. Uh, so, in response to the wrongdoing of others, when you don't have jurisdiction to punish them, one fitting expression of blame is to withhold goodwill, the goodwill that may lead to a special relationship with that person, <coughs> you know, a special relationship that would lead to sort of other closer ties and obligations. And so by analogy, you'd say that uh, even though the receiving state doesn't have jurisdiction to punish the crimes committed by the refugee protection claimant, uh, what they can do as a fitting expression of blame is withhold the goodwill that may lead to this negotiation of a special beneficent pact that may ultimately entitle the refugee protection claimant 
to settle in the receiving state. Okay? Uh, so I find this analogy evocative and it's very suggestive, um, but I don't think it's a full explanation. And the reason I don't think it's a full explanation is obviously that excluding a person in your neighborhood from friendship is not the same as excluding a refugee protection from a refugee protection claim from protection if the alternative is that they may be sent back to face persecution. Right. So and this is where I think you ultimately, and I'm coming to the end, uh, have to turn to Kant's ideas about criminality. Uh, and where I also think uh, this is also I think the part in the account where you may want to actually really question the account because to sort of fall to accept the rest of the account you have to accept Kant's rather sort of Old Testament type views about <coughs> criminal punishment uh, and in particular you'd have to accept uh, his uh, retributive sorry I do that in French too retributivist views uh, with respect to punishment. So Kant was famously a proponent of lex talionis, uh, killers should be killed, etc. Uh, and he also believed two other things. One, that it's essential that all criminals be punished. So the famous passage in Kant's Metaphysics of Morals, where this comes out, is a passage where he says, and now I'm reading again, uh, even if uh, a civil society were be dissolved by the consent of all its members. The last murderer remaining in prison would first have to be executed so that each has done to him what his deeds deserve uh, and blood guilt does not cling to the people for not having insisted upon this punishment. For otherwise the people can be regarded as collaborators in this public violation of justice. So everyone has to be punished. And if you don't punish them, you're liable to blood guilt or to be uh, sort of tarred with the label of collaborating in the injustice that they committed. Um, so that's one part of Kant's thinking about, um, uh, thinking about uh, criminal punishment. The other, thing, the, other thing that I, the other thing that Kant says about criminal punishment that I think is relevant here is that he says that certain crimes, actually the, uh, the fitting response to certain crimes is to permanently expel the person from the civil condition. Right? And specifically what he talks about is um, crimes against humanity. So you see that phrase in Kant. It's a bit weird because he's actually talking about bestiality um, or zoophilia, as my French colleagues call it. And, uh, but he says that the proper response to this crime against humanity is permanent expulsion from civil society since the criminal has made himself unworthy of human society. So to get us back to refugee protection, uh, my claim is the following in this attempt to construe this practice of exclusion. So what's going on here is that the receiving state, <coughs> faced with a person with a criminal past, uh, is in a quandary. On the one hand, they can't punish the person, because uh, exclusion isn't punishment, uh, or even if you could ramp up the institution, uh, of exclusion to sort of increase the standard of pr proof or provide evidentiary uh, and procedural protections. Uh, ex uh, expulsion to persecution could never be punishment. Um, so you can't punish this person. But on the other hand, you don't want to be liable to blood <laughs> guilt, right? You don't want to become a collaborator in the guilt of 
the refugee protection claimant with the criminal past. Um, and so the only way forward when you can't punish and you want to avoid blood guilt is to withhold beneficence, to withhold goodwill from the refugee protection in negotiating uh, this special beneficent pact that may determine whether or not the person has the right to remain on the territory or not. Um, so how does that cash out in terms of an interpretation of Article 1F? Um, I think that what you can say that the refugee protection claimant is entitled to or should be entitled to if we follow through with this Kantian interpretation is that they're entitled to not be clearly treated as an enemy. They're entitled not to be clearly expelled to destruction uh, insofar as you can make those determinations sort of outside of the, even while withholding beneficence or goodwill towards that person. Um, but that person is not entitled to the goodwill that may eventually lead to the right to settle uh, as a refugee and maybe eventually to become a citizen. Um, and so, so that in a nutshell is it, right? That in a nutshell is it. So the best, way, the best way to explain exclusion, I'm saying here, is as the withholding of beneficence as a fitting expression of blame for the past criminal acts of certain refugee protection claimants. Um, I just, so I just want to note sort of certain things that follow from this interpretation and one open question that remains in closing. One is that, um, you know, th there's a debate in refugee law, those of you who know refugee law will know this debate, about whether or not uh, exclusion should be applied to people who've actually served their sentences, who've actually faced criminal punishment, um, and, uh, and, you know, yeah, have, been, have, yeah, have served their sentences. So it's no longer a question of, of letting these people off the hook. Uh, the case law now decide, has now decided that uh, even if someone has served their punishment, they can still be excluded. Uh, I think that on the Kantian interpretation, this ends up being wrong. Because if the person has served their sentence, you could admit them eventually to citizenship without having blood guilt on your hands. Um, the other thing that I think it leads you to is the conclusion that is that to the extent that um, people who are refugee protection claimants who've committed an Article 1F crime or guilty act end up actually being sent back to a country to be persecuted. So the extent that you're actually sending them back to be destroyed, I think that that is off limits under the Kantian interpretation, if it's clear that they will be destroyed. So, you know, most refugee regimes now, if you're excluded under Article 1F, will nonetheless not deport you if it's relatively obvious that you will face a certain narrow band of human rights violations. Torture, death, uh, inhumane uh, treatment, uh, inhumane or cruel and unusual treatment or punishment. And this Kantian interpretation actually seems to say that that combination of this sort of extra protection with Article 1F kind of gets things right. Because um, that way you're not destroying people, even though you're excluding them from refugee protection. But, and then this is the last uh, open question, and something I haven't fully um, worked out myself, is that 
So I've said that where does authority come from in cosmopolitan right? It comes from this this making of decisions about right uh, beneficently. But if if uh, by blaming people with a criminal past, you're withholding beneficence from them. An open question is where does the authority like how do how are these de decisions made authoritative with respect to people when you withhold this beneficence? How does this how does this how does exclusion become authoritative with respect to people with a criminal past? So that concludes what I have to say and thank you very much. Thank you.